We're going to start, we're in Romans chapter 11, but I want you to go to the very, very end of Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, because you're going to see that Paul comes to this section at the very end, and it'll make a whole lot more sense if you read first, then we deal with the chapter, and then you'll see why he broke into this phrase. Uh, verses 33 through 36, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments is as beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, we'll deal with this in the time we have left at the end of this study tonight. But I want you just to understand and hear this ahead of time. Paul, after trying to trace out God's plan, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight, tracing out of God's plan for the nation of Israel, he breaks into this praise of saying, you know what, we can't trace your plans out. But, we know this much, it's all about you, and you're, you're perfect, and you're wonderful, and you're awesome, and you let us be a part of it. And so, we just want, he just had to break into praise. So, go back now to chapter 11, verse 1. And we're dealing with the third aspect of the three things we've been dealing with over the last three weeks. That's not me. That's all, right? Now, if you, for, for, uh, for reminder's sake, and for those who haven't been here, what are the three, three issues that we're trying to deal with? Do you remember how Paul was dealing with three different issues over the last three weeks? Do you remember what the first one was? Uh, establish God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, and, and establish God's sovereignty in the fact that He is in control of all things and can do it however He wants. Mm-hmm. Second thing was? Jews are responsible for their spiritual. Very good. The Jews are responsible for their own spiritual fight, if you like to put it. Uh, their rejection of, 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 they're responsible, not God, for their rejection of the Messiah. And tonight we're dealing with? The third part? He has not cast off the nation of Israel forever. Now this is important, because there are a lot of denominations, unfortunately, that teach he has. And have taught that for many years. And actually, most of the major denominations teach what we would call a replacement theology, where they teach that the church has replaced Israel, and all the promises made to the nation of Israel are now being fulfilled in the church. And then because of that, they have wrong teaching on what we would call eschatology or last things and how the world's going to come to an end and all that because they're looking to try to interpret all these passages that deal with the nation of Israel in the last days and the Antichrist setting himself up in the temple in Jerusalem and all these things. They're trying now to interpret these passages kind of as allegory or, or spiritual pictures instead of literal interpretation. Let me just throw out to you real quickly, all the way through Scripture, every time God prophesied, it was literally fulfilled. He wouldn't stop at the end. It is literal. What the Bible talks about Babylon and the this, this city of Babylon being destroyed in the very, very end, it's going to be literally Babylon. Now, for years there hasn't been a Babylon, but for those of us that have lived long enough, what are they doing right now since uh, the Iraq war? They're rebuilding Babylon and actually hoping to make it a major tourist center. And all these things, all of a sudden, that for years we haven't really fully understood what they would mean, and we tried to make Babylon represent this or Babylon represent that. Now we're starting to see, wait a minute, Babylon might actually mean Babylon. You know, and so I want you to understand that as we deal tonight that God has not rejected Israel forever, has been here clearly in the scriptures. And so let's take a look now at verses 1 through 6. Paul says, I asked them, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, he says, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were grace... If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Now, here Paul starts off and says, Okay, remember we just left off last week in Romans chapter 10, verse 21. Look at how it says, But concerning Israel, God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. We looked last week at how God was calling and saying, Please respond to me. 
Come to me in faith. I'm sending you prophets. I'm sending you my son. And they rejected the Messiah as a whole. Individual Jews responded, but as a whole, the nation rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so then he has says, okay, he's, as we just dealt with it, we'll deal with a lot more tonight. He dealt with the fact that, they, that God hardened them. Has he totally rejected them forever, is the question. No. It says, by no means. And how does he illustrate it? He illustrates it two ways in this section we just looked at. Can you give me one of the ways he illustrates that God has not rejected the Jews forever? Elijah. Okay, we'll get to Elijah. That's the second one. He's left a remnant. Okay, that, that's the second one. Yeah, most people have missed that. This is what he's saying is, is that, guys, think about this. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. And he chose to reveal himself to me. Alright, this is, remember, at the time of the cross, he began to move his drawing, and we're going to see that more clearly, uh, to the Gentiles, or first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. But even after the time of the cross, while Paul was out there trying to have Christians put to death, Jesus came and showed himself to a Jew. He's not totally done with the Jews. I'm a Jew, Paul says. Have you ever thought about that? Well, I guess not. I guess, Paul, you're a Jew too, aren't you? I must not be done totally with the Jews. And, and so Paul says, that's one of the illustrations, is I'm a Jew too. And he still revealed himself to me. He's not totally done with the Jews. Secondly, like you just pointed out, he also referred back to the time of Elijah, when Elijah is uh, you know, thinking he's the only one left, and Jezebel's trying to kill him, and God says, chill out, there are 7,000 have not bowed their knee to Baal. But I want to deal with how it's worded here, because we're going to deal with some topics tonight of chosen by grace or election and these types of things. So stick with me here. But look at what he says here. Now, I tend to do my reserve for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Alright, now this remnant is talking about the nation of Israel. We've got to keep this in mind. Whenever you see the term remnant in the scriptures, it's referring to the nation of Israel, or that small portion, if you will, of believing Jews that has always been throughout history there, those who have faith in God. Okay? Now, we a lot of times talk about, oh, there's a remnant in our church. Well, you can kind of try to use that word, but biblically the term remnant is always referring to the nation of Israel or that small portion of believing Jews that has always been throughout time and throughout history. Alright? And so... We use the picture sometimes of when we talk about some of our churches that are struggling and there's a small group in there that are still believing God and trying to be faithful to Him and all, and they consider themselves a remnant. It's kind of a picture, but you really that's not the remnant. When you see the remnant, it's talking about the nation of Israel. But what do you think it means when it says that they've been chosen by grace? They're accepting Christ. They've accepted Christ. That's very important, because that is actually what it's saying. Some might say to you that he has chosen just to keep these people separate and safe. No, that would contradict everything that Paul has been trying to say throughout this entire book. Remember at the very beginning, he said it's not by works, it's not by anything they do, it's been by God's gift of faith, or gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way you can be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, no one can come to the Father except through me. And so what he's just simply saying is, these ones chosen by grace, are there are and have always been Jews who had belief and faith in God and his provision through Jesus Christ. Can you give me the name of some remnant Jews that you can think of? Job. Job. Keep going. Judas Jesus, David Judas, Judas right now as well, apart from random Jews. How about just the twelve apostles, or the eleven at least? Yeah, you know? Cornelius. Cornelius is actually not a Jew, he was a devout man. He was actually a Gentile. But it's okay. It's a good guess. Well, he was a one of their original twelve was not a Jew. He's not one of the twelve. Well, never mind. That's all right. <laughs> We've always associated he was because of Matthew, Mark, Luke, oh, and John. He's one of the, he's, he's one of the gospel writers, but he wasn't, but he wasn't one, of the, one of the twelve. But all along there have been Jews who had faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why when even you see him writing to churches, he's speaking to the Jews, and now I'm speaking to the Gentiles in the church. There's always been a remnant. But when it says chosen by grace, it's simply, as Allison has pointed out, it's speaking of those Jews who believe in Jesus. Okay? Don't anybody tell you that this is God's pre-choosing of these people are going to be saved and these pre-chosen not to be saved. It's talking about simply those who believe in Jesus Christ. Remember, salvation is by 
grace. It's by grace. And we'll get into that, what it means by chosen by grace, in just a little bit more in the time to come. But remember, God predestined that the way to him was through faith in Christ, through his gift of grace. That was chosen ahead of time, planned ahead of time, predestined from the beginning of the world. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God pre-planned, predestined, that those who would come to him would come through Jesus. We were chosen before the world in him to be adopted as his sons. It's through Jesus. That's the thing that's been chosen ahead of time. It's through grace. Who is the remnant? Those that believe in Jesus Christ. Jews that believe in Jesus Christ. Okay? And there's a remnant. And as much as he knew there were 7,000 who hadn't bowed their knee to Baal, he knows who they all are now. And there's always been a remnant. There's always been a nation of Israel. Think about the history of the Jews. What's their history been like? War. War. Now, a lot of it is a consequence of their disobedience and their rejecting of the Messiah and their turning their back on God and worshiping other gods or not believing in God, even at times. How about what, even what Hitler tried to do? What, what did Hitler try to do? He tried to totally annihilate them. Right now, we got a manager trying to do the same thing and hoping to wipe them off the face of the earth. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Why? Because God made a promise back to the nation of Israel, or actually Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he said they will be an everlasting people. Always. Always, always, always everlasting. And remember, God can't lie or be mistaken, so if he said they'll always exist, folks, they'll always exist. It's just an amazing thing when you really study their history. Go ahead. And God wants them to be totally dependent on him. It's not an accident that all these countries around them have oil, they can depend on. Mm-hmm. Jews don't have that. That's right. There are some that believe that in the end, that the Jews will actually find oil. They just definitely found some natural gas, which is extremely uh, productive and, and, and in all form and valuable. Um, but there, there are some that believe that in, in the very, very last days, that the nations around will be coming after Israel for lots of reasons, and one of them being their oil. But you're right. He, uh, I actually believe that part of the United States disappearing from the prophetic end times picture will be so that the nation of Israel will totally depend on God. They've had Big Brother for many years, and God has blessed us because of that. As he blesses those who bless Israel and curses those who curse them. The sad thing is, little by little, even in the Bush administration, um, we as a nation have started to turn our back on Israel, and now we're pushing for a two-state solution. And if you don't have time, but you go look at Joel chapter 3 and see what God says about how he feels about those nations who divide his land. It's pretty serious. And actually, the Bible says one day, at the very end, he's going to bring all of the nations into the valley of Jehoshaphat and judge them for dividing his land. And we as a nation, even more now with the present administration, are turning our back on the nation of Israel. And I think that's a part of what God's going to do to get them to the final place where they totally turn their eyes to faith in God and their and His provision through Jesus. Alright? So, let's move on because we've got a lot to cover. Chapter 11 now, verses 7 through 10. Someone read verses 7 through 10. What thing? Why Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain? But the elect did. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that they could not see, and ears that they could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Alright, now again, he then, Paul in this book you see a lot, will develop a deep theme, and then he'll try to deal with questions that may come up because of what he's just dealt with. And trust me, I under, understand that a lot, because a lot of times I have the privilege of being able to do a Bible study, and if you have a question, I hope you're willing to raise your hand or ask it, and we can then make sure that you're understanding what I'm saying. But in a lot of times when I'm teaching or preaching somewhere, I'm just speaking to a big audience, and I hope they're hearing what I'm saying. Sometimes they don't. Uh, sometimes they miss it. And, and in this situation, he's writing a letter. And you hope they interpret the letter. You, you all understand that now. With emails, you, you start to realize that as good as email is, sometimes people misinterpret your tone. You know? They're like, 
You know, sometimes we have to use all caps to try to illustrate something or whatever. And I've started to realize, you know what, as valuable as email is, some things that I need to communicate with somebody, I'd rather talk to them over the phone so they can hear my voice and understand what I'm really trying to communicate so that they won't take those words and read them a certain way. You know, and this is what Paul is dealing with. He understands. And maybe those who then jump to this conclusion, I need to deal with that then. So then he goes on and says, okay, so the Israel's, what Israel's sides were earnestly, it didn't obtain, but who did it says the elect. We got to deal with this word. This is a word that's been used and thrown around by some people of a theology of the fact that God has pre-chosen who will be saved. He's pre-chosen who's going to go to hell. And you've heard me talk about this a little bit, but I want to take a little time tonight just to kind of clarify this passage. So why did they use the word elect? Why did you use the word elect? Stick with me here and I'll show you. <laughs> Remember, election refers to God's pre-choosing. All right? And it's obvious, when you see in this context, it's obvious that he's talking about God's pre-choosing. All right? But the pre-choosing is not who, but how. Whenever you see in the scriptures, and I challenge you to double-check this, don't ever take anybody's word for it, but whenever you see the word predestined, you go and look and you'll see that when it talks about something being predestined, it is not the who, but the how of salvation. Aspects of salvation have been predestined. Nowhere in scripture does the scripture say that God has predestined who will be saved. Alright? For example, in Ephesians, let's go there real quick. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 3 uh, and following here. Says, Paul says, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, here's the thing. You could read that and you could make it and try and teach it that he's pre-chosen, he chose us in him before the creation of the world, and you could put your emphasis on he chose us, or you put your emphasis on he predestined us. But I want to throw it out to you. You know that in, in, when you pronounce certain words, uh, there's an accent on a certain syllable, right? And you can use the word emphasis, or you can say emphasis, or emphasis, you know. And where you put the emphasis, if you will, on which syllable kind of declares what you're trying to communicate. In the same way, I want to throw the emphasis here in verse 4 on the in him. Look closely. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Do you see how it could be teaching, and I believe it is, because it matches up with the whole of Scripture, that what was chosen was the in him part. And keep reading and you'll see it. Before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus. The emphasis is on the how, not the who. Well, there are three at the end. Mm-hmm. So it's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in, in Christ. Christ. Exactly. And that's what I want you to understand. If you look at the whole of Scripture, when you take a passage like this, you need to interpret it using the whole of Scripture to be able to really understand the depth of the meaning of it. So there are those who try to say that God has clearly pre-chosen who will be saved. The Bible really never does say that. Even in Romans 8.29, where it says, For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What has been predestined is there is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He planned ahead of time that those that would come to him would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Nowhere in Scripture does the, is the choosing the who. The choosing is the how. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of what I'm talking about. One I think God puts my eyes to is the picture of, of the situation with Gideon. Gideon's been, uh, God shows up to Gideon and says, hey, I want to use you to uh, defeat the Midianites. And so Gideon gathers his army. He is 32,000 men. And God comes and says, that's too many. That's not what I want to do to get, gain glory for myself. Uh, tell anybody that wants to go home, they're free to go home. 22,000 say, you've got a deal. And they leave. He's got 10,000 now left. And God has him take that 10,000 down to the water, and he says, the ones who drink in this manner are the ones I've chosen. Now, did these guys have the ability to choose how they would drink? They had every choice, whether or not they were going to laugh or get down on their hands and knees. They had a choice. But God had pre-chosen the method by which he would determine which ones. Do you understand? 
What has been pre-chosen is that those who will come to him must come through faith in Jesus Christ. That's been pre-chosen. Everyone has a choice for how they drink. But the ones whom say yes to Jesus Christ are the elect. Let me give you another illustration. Let's say I sent an email to everybody at the Bible study and said, okay, um, you, you, this week in the mail you're going to get a package. And the package is going to be a blue shirt. I want you to wear the blue shirt to Bible study. Whoever wears the blue shirt is going to get a prize. Now some of you might say, blue is not my color. Others might say, my clothes are good enough. I don't need to wear a blue shirt to come to Bible study. Others you might say, yeah, prize. Yeah, we know Jim Johnson. This is a prize. All right? This is a prize. But some of you might, by faith, put the blue shirt on. Who would be the elect? Those who wore the blue shirt. Now, were they pre-chosen? No. The how was pre-chosen. I had pre-chosen that I would give a gift to those who showed up in the blue shirt. You understand? The ones who wore the blue shirt of the elect. Who were the elect? Those of us who said yes to Jesus Christ. Were we elect because he chose us, or he chose the how? He chose the how. So when you see... He knows the... Oh, he definitely knows. He he knows everything. I mean, it's all now. He knows who will choose. He knows who will choose, but that doesn't change the fact that you have a choice. And it doesn't change the fact that he wants everyone to choose. You're going to see that as we get to the end of this chapter. Go ahead. Well, same question. It's the fact that he knows that he's sovereign and he knows. He definitely knows. We can't deny that. But as some people have said to me, well, if God knows what tie I'm going to wear tomorrow, I really don't have a choice. The answer is, yes, you do. If you try to make this fit in your head, folks, it's going to hurt you. I'm going to tell you right now, God knows it all, yet you're still responsible. Because we see in Matthew chapter 22, the parable of the wedding banquet. And he sent his servants to invite them, and they said no. He sent them again, and they said no. He sent them again, and they said no. And he then destroyed them and burned their city. You see, at the end of that parable, somebody shows up, but instead of allowing the master to robe him, he tried to come in on his own righteousness. And the master says, How, what are you doing in here without the wedding garment? In a sense, the guy was saying, I don't need your wedding garment. I'm, my clothes are good enough. I can get here on my own. And he was cast out. Huh? He didn't wear the blue shirt. He didn't wear the blue shirt. It helped a lot for me to think about this and remember that time is something God created. We are so bound by time. We're like, well, how does he know what's going to happen? You know what? He's outside of this created entity we know as time. And so we get all hung up on the foreknowledge thing. When he knows it all, every dotted I and cross T all the way to the end of our time, and he's sitting above all of it. He's not bound by time. It's absolutely mind-blowing to me that Christ came to the earth and submitted himself to physical limitations and to the limitation of time. Um, And if we can just remember, okay... His foreknowledge shouldn't shake me up at all because he's outside of time. Of course he knows everything that's going to happen. How can he tell Daniel? I told him those prophecies in the book of Daniel, especially when you get to chapter 8 and, and chapter 10 and 11, where he starts talking about the, the four kings and the king of the north and the king of south, and oh, this one's going to marry with that one. And it literally, to the end detail, happened. Right. How did he know all that? Well, he told David what was going to happen to Christ. He sure did. I think the easy way that I think I've mentioned before that someone had told me years ago is that you're watching a movie you don't know what the end is going to be but he's already seen the whole movie so he knows in detail he has it memorized (laughs) 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 but don't let that make you say that I really don't have a choice you do you will be held accountable for everything you choose to do or not do. You are responsible for your actions. The good news is, man is not so sovereign that his actions will change God's envy. That's why I can look you in the eye and say, it doesn't matter how many nations gather against Israel, they'll always exist. 
And it doesn't matter who comes to fight against them, Israel's going to win. Because the Bible has already said it. God has already said it. In the last days, they're going to suffer some losses. There's going to be some people wiped out. But the nation of Israel, he'll reserve a remnant. There'll be those at the very end who are going to come to faith in him. And we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's go to, let's deal with one more thing in this section. So, it says, Israel sought earnestly and they didn't obtain it. But the elect did. The others were hardest. And then he talks about these prophecies from Isaiah and other places that talk about the hardening. What I want to deal with real quickly is, uh, did the ones who were hardened by God, the Jews who were hardened by God, have any opportunity before the hardening? Now hopefully you know the answer to that, what we just dealt with. Yes, but I want you to look at a scripture that will help you see it. It's easy to say, well, I believe they had a choice. That's great. But do you have any scripture to back it up? Because a lot of us believe a lot of stuff. I remember, uh, some of you even know it, but Charles Schultz used to do cartoons that actually, beyond the, the, the penis characters, he used to draw cartoons, Christian cartoons, where the penis, the, the penis characters were now teenagers. But they, were, they had the same kind of heads almost, but they were tall and fit. And one of the funniest cartoons I ever saw that he drew was this. He had this guy laying on his belly looking at the scriptures, and this girl was trying to talk to him, and he said, leave me alone. I'm trying to find a scripture to back up one of my preconceived notions. You know? Many of us believe something so strong, God must believe it too. And I want to tell you, you better base what you believe only on the fact that the scripture says it. And don't just take one verse. The whole of scripture better take, better, better teach it. So go real quick, though, to John chapter 12, verses 37 through 40. I want you to see, in one place at least for now, that there, the Bible does talk about the fact that those that are hardened have a choice. <coughs> John chapter 12, verses 37 through 41. I'm through 40. It says, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in Him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed their message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Where is that from? Does anybody know where that quote's from? Isaiah. Isaiah 53. It's the beginning of Isaiah 53. But before we go on further, I want you to look closely what the scripture just said here. It said they would not believe. They had a choice. They chose not to believe. Remember how Jesus stood over Jerusalem and wept? He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you would have let me. I would have gathered you into my arms as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you wouldn't. He stood there and said, you had a choice. You had a, Jesus himself teaching. He says, look, it's going to be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum. Because they had more light. They had more revealed to them. They had more understanding. I came and walked in their presence. So we're going to be judged according to how much light we've received as well. Why? Because we do have a choice. And here he says they wouldn't. But that was the fulfilled prophecy said that there were going to be those who wouldn't believe. But then he then goes on and adds to it now and says in verse 39, For this reason then they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, He has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts and their turn and I would heal them. There comes a point then after their would not that God makes it a could not. Do you understand? It was a would not and it became a could, a, a could not. The nation of Israel as a whole could not, cannot respond. Because remember, we've got to understand, apart from God opening our eyes, we're not going to see it. Romans 3.10, we know, says that there's no one righteous, not even one. Okay, but verse 11 says no one seeks God. No one understands. John 6.44, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. So if God is not opening your eyes, if God is not drawing you, you're not going to be able to see it. But understand, the scripture teaches that everyone has an opportunity to see and to hear. There comes a point where he says, you had your opportunity, your opportunity is done. When is that? Don't know. Preach and teach and share the good news with everybody like they still have that opportunity. That's not for us to say or no. So, so does the Holy Spirit, does the Holy Spirit come into people and then they will just choose? He doesn't come in. But he, he calls them. Knocking on the door, if you will, quick. Hmm? Did free will stop for those people? Well, if you can stick on a little bit longer, I think we're going to answer it in just a little bit. 
So, uh, I actually believe, you know, did not. <laughs> You'll be here. I actually, I'll give you the quick answer. I believe the answer is yet no, that free will did not. I, got, I'm, I was trying to figure out how to answer your question. No, free will did not stop. But I believe that the Bible teaches that it became a lot harder all of a sudden. A lot harder for them to respond. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? So stick with me, and I'll get back to what I mean by that, and we'll, we'll move on. But I just want you to understand the difference between the would not and the could not. Okay? But I do believe, though, in answer to your question, there does come a final point of free will does come to an end. The Bible says this that spirit will not strive with man. There comes a point where your opportunity is over. Is over. Alright? But I'll clarify that in time. Go ahead. He did that with Pharaoh. He did that with Pharaoh. After the fourth or fifth play, where he's trying Pharaoh's heart and God. Right. But then after that, it changes. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Right. But if you look closely, like you said, Pharaoh hardened his own heart the first time. And they're the ones. At this point, God says, now it's not going to happen. Even Pharaoh had an opportunity to repent. Right. So why I'm answering it both ways is I believe the Bible teaches that there is a point where God says, if I don't give the opportunity, you don't have a choice. You can't. Yet, as you're about to see at the end of this chapter, he'll begin to draw the nation of Israel again. And he is still drawing individuals. The whole If you're a Jew, it doesn't mean you can't see ever. And one of the aspects of God that is brought out by Scripture over and over again is his patience and his long-suffering. Mm-hmm. So... Well, and it's all for his purpose. The nation as a whole is not going to come to him until they're brought to their knees. Because their hearts have become so hard through the years. Alright. Go to chapter 11 now, verses 11. I'm going to read this whole section here. Verses 11 through 24. Paul says, again, I ask, did they stumble, talking about the Jews, so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, but closely, to make Israel envious. Do you see, do you see God's heart for the nation of Israel there still? He's not only saving us, though. He's using us to make the nation of Israel jealous. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring for them, is what he's saying. Don't read that for us. Alright? It's for them. I am talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and to save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You'll say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, let's be honest. Paul is dealing with some very, 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 very deep stuff here. And uh, we're not going to be able to fully grasp it, but there's a few things I believe we need to pull out to kind of deal with. The first one is this. God's heart is for the Jews, even while he's drawing the Gentiles as a whole right now. He's using the Gentiles to hopefully open the eyes of the Jews through envy as the, as the Jews see us have the salvation they long for. All right, now, granted, at this time, many Jews would not think that we have it. There are a lot of Jews that say, well, we 
think we do, but we don't. And, and I remember, I actually, when I was pastoring in Chicago, I uh, did an email conversation back and forth with this one Jewish man who uh, had heard me preach and wanted to ask me some questions. And, and, and he said, I only want you to use the Torah when you talk to me. I don't believe that the New Testament, as you call it, is the Bible. I only believe in the Torah. So if you're going to talk to me about Jesus, I want you to use the Torah. And one of the times, and I did, I said, that's fine. Because I believe the Old Testament talks about him just as much. Jesus himself even said, he said, look, um, you go look, Moses wrote about me. Uh, we saw Paul talk about how the law and the prophets testify toward about this righteousness. And so the man at one point sent me an email and he said this. He said, nowhere in the Torah does the Bible say that the Messiah will be God. And I said, you need to go back and reread Isaiah 9, 6. Would you not agree that that is a passage talking about the Messiah? For his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What's the next part? Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Now, I don't know whatever happened to this man. I never heard from him again. Oh. Now again, I'm not saying I won. I'm simply saying I just pray that the Spirit of God took that truth. That, oh, by the way, the Messiah is going to be God. It's there. It's all there. And so, in this situation, I want you to see that God's heart is for the Jews. Now, I'm going to share with you something here that just recently God has opened my eyes to, which has just excited me. I've been teaching, I preach on Tuesdays when I'm in town to a group of men at Central Baptist Church. Uh, the group's called Men in Motion. It's a group of businessmen who, uh, during their lunch hour on Tuesdays, come to Central Baptist and they get a meal and they get to hear me preach for 20 minutes. And then they go back to work during the, during the lunch hour after that. I've been preaching a series there on understanding and knowing the will of God and actually coming at it from a totally different angle on the fact that instead of the pressure being on us to go find the will of God, actually throughout Scripture, when God has a plan, and the Bible is very clear, He has a plan for all of us. If you're still breathing, then He has got a plan for you because the Bible is clear when He's done with you, you're done. Alright, so if you're still here, He's got a plan. And I've been showing them that actually every time God had a plan for someone, He showed up and revealed His plan. He never sat back waiting for them to find it. And too many of us have been told to, God is a plan for your life. Go find God's will for your life. And the pressure's on us to find it. When actually I've come to realize, good luck not finding God's will for your life. Because of who He is, He's the one who determined when you would be born. None of us had to say when we would be born, right? He also determined where we would be born according to Acts 17.26. And on top of that, we don't seek Him. He seeks us first. And when we respond in faith to His gift of salvation and His offer through Jesus Christ, He's the one who saves us. He's the one who puts His Spirit within us. He's the one who seals us for eternity. And Philippians 1.6 says, we can be confident in this very thing, that He who began this good work, He'll finish it. Yet for too long the church today has been taught that it's up to us to find God's will for your life. You better go find what your spiritual gifts are, and then you need to go to your work according. And it's been on us. And I've been speaking to the people about how to recognize the fact that God's going to show you His plan. But one of the ways you'll know is that He's placed a desire in our hearts. That's from Him. That lines up with what He wants to do in our lives. But one of the problems I've had with teaching it, I've known it was scripturally too true, but one of the problems that I've had is I've taught people this and say, look, what is that desire that God's put in your heart? What is it? Because that will help you start to see what he's preparing for you for, what he's shaping you for. Abraham and Sarah, what was the desire in their heart? Have a child. And God put that desire in their heart. And he fulfilled it. And it not only was only a child, it was a very special child. And the promised Messiah was going to come through him and all this. All the way through scripture you see it. But the one place that has just tormented me has been Paul. Because what was Paul's desire? We saw it a couple chapters ago. Remember he said he would, he would love to... If, 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 he, if, he, if he had to go to hell in order for the nation of Israel to be saved, he'd do it. What was Paul's desire? He says, my desire is that Israel would believe in Jesus Christ. That was the desire that the Father put in Paul's heart. His desire was to see the nation of Israel get saved. Yet... God tells them to go preach to who? To the Gentiles. And I have wrestled with that, to be honest with you, and said, Lord, I know what I've been teaching is true, but how come it appears that you put a desire in Paul's heart, but then you don't give him a plan that lines up with his desire? You tell him to go preach to the Gentiles. 
until I got to this chapter. Look what Paul says now. He says, I'm, verse 13, I am talking to you Gentiles and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, but I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and to save some of them. Let me just tell you something Paul says. I'm preaching to you because God's told me to preach to you, but the reason I'm preaching to you is in the hopes that your coming to faith will make my people jealous. I'm really preaching to the Jews through you. And understand my heart. I want you to know Jesus, but my heart's still for the nation of Israel. And God is fulfilling His desire in Paul's heart through His preaching to the Gentiles. And then God opened my eyes to something in Acts chapter 9. Go real quick to Acts chapter 9. In the situation where Paul is, uh, Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus and reveals himself to Paul. Look there at verse 15, when Ananias is sent to go lay hands on him and heal him of his blindness. Look closely at what it says. It said, But the Lord said to Ananias, Bill, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, and what else? And before the people of Israel, the sons of Israel. God had put a desire in Paul's heart, and Paul, God's plan for Paul's life still lined up with his desire that God had placed there. He hadn't had him do something that was against his desire. He came to realize that the preaching to the Gentiles was a part of that desire for the nation of Israel, because it's through them seeing what we have that they come to faith. Now listen, when is this going to finally happen? When Jesus comes back. And they look on him whom they have pierced. At that moment, all this stuff that we Gentiles hopefully have been sharing the good news of salvation with the Jews. They may not understand it right now. Their hearts may still be hardened. But you've got to preach the truth because one day, some way, somehow, and definitely by the time Jesus comes back, a light is going to click on. And they're going to say, what the Gentiles had, we can have. What he offered them, we can have. Because you know what? They definitely would sit back and say, those bum Gentiles haven't worked for it like we have. They don't keep the law like we have. And they say they got salvation. And then when they see the truth and God opens their eyes to salvation by grace through faith, they will understand if those people who didn't keep the law got it, we don't have to keep the law to get it. We too can just say it's by faith. And it just excites me to see that the desire God placed in Paul's heart was being fulfilled as he preached to the Gentiles. Now, I don't know about you, that's just cool. I like that a lot. Now, real quickly, though, go down to verse 18. Do not boast over those branches. He's now speaking to the Gentiles, and he's saying this. Don't think you're better than them. Don't think we figured it out, and they didn't. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. All right? Are they the natural branches? They're the natural branches. We're the wild ones that have been grafted in. We're the wild child. We're the wild child, is right. Well, what I want, I'm going to read to you what I wrote down here. Do not think you're better than the Jews. We Gentiles are part of the salvation by and through faith in God's grace. If we think it's because we're smarter or better in any way, then we'll be thinking we had some merit in our salvation. And that is works. I'm going to say it again. If you think it's because we're any smarter or better in any way, then we'll be thinking we had some merit in our salvation and that's works. The moment Gentiles think they have earned it, they will be cut off or rejected just as the Jews were for thinking they could earn it. He's not saying, because this passage here says be careful or you may be cut off too. He's not saying you can lose your salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. He's just simply saying, you Gentiles, I want you to keep this in perspective. You are, have been grafted in by God's gift of grace given to you. It has nothing to do with you. God has opened the door as to give you this opportunity for salvation. Don't think you're better than them. Oh, and isn't it sad how much the church today in many areas thinks they're better than the nation of Israel? Well, God's promises are for the church. All that stuff is for us now. Where are the true Israel? Don't go there, folks. Don't go there. You better keep a heart for God's people. Because even Paul, who understood this, was saying, you Gentiles, I'm preaching to you, and hopes that the Jews would come to envy and have their eyes open. Don't think you're better. And he's simply saying, the moment you start thinking you earned it because you figured it out, then you think it's on you and not on God. And he's going to reject you Gentiles as well. 
because the Jews rejected because they thought they could earn it or were worthy of it. It's by grace. Alright? He's also saying that too, that the only reason the Gentiles are even given the opportunity is because the Jews rejected them. Yes. And so our salvation through grace is because of their rejection in some way. It's not to say that God wouldn't have well, it has been, it has been his plan all along. But yes, where is the trunk of the tree, the root? We're going to get. That's where we're headed in the very next section. The, the Jews first. And that's it. That's a great transition. And let's just go there real quick. All right. Look, look at what he says in verse 23. And I want you to see this. Highlight it. Underline it. And it kind of goes back. I don't even know your name, by the way. Uh, Ron. Ron, okay. <laughs> this goes back to your question. Look closely now what we're talking about here. And it says, And if they do not persist in unbelief, unbelief, they will be grafted in. So do they still have an opportunity for salvation? Yes. When we see the hardening, when we see the Bible talking about the hardening, it is not a total to the point of no opportunity. It's just... It's going to be a lot harder now for you because God is not going to make it easy. Do you understand? But he says, but if they still, if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. In other words, there's still an opportunity for the Jews to be saved. If so, why, if there wasn't, why was Paul even going to the synagogues? If they have been hardened to the, part, to the point that there's no salvation for the Jews, it's God shut the door. Why would he even go to the synagogue? Why would God send him? Do you understand? So, do they still have a free will? Yes. Will it be easy? No. It won't be easy because without God helping us, we can't see it. And we harden our own hearts every time we say no. So it's not yes. like God is the total one that's hardened hearts. We're exactly. hardening our own hearts. That's without question. It makes it easier to say no. I don't want to. Alright. And so now, Paul answers in this. Alright. Alright, the question I have is this then. How will this happen since they've been hardened? Okay? I mean, the thing is there, if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in, speaking of the Jews. Well, how can this happen if they've been hardened? Well, as we've just touched on, it's not a complete hardening. But look at how Paul answers that now in verses 25 and following. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced the hardening. What's the next part? In part. It's not complete hardening until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel, God knows, by the way, how many they're going to be in that foreknowledge stuff we're talking about. And he knows when that number is. And what, who it is. And when it's going to happen. You want to get to heaven, go find them. Go find who that is. Keep it up. Find them quick. Yeah, but, but, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Look at this verse here. For God has bound how many? All men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on who? All of them. Salvation is available to everyone. God hasn't pre-chosen who will and who won't. He's bound all men over to disobedience so that he'll have mercy on them all. But what I want to deal with is what Chris was just talking about. What I want to talk about now is how the drawing of the Spirit of God first started with the Jews and then moved to the Gentiles and is going to move in the very last days where? Back to the Jews. So, go to Romans chapter 1. We saw it at the very beginning of this. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Somebody with a good loud voice for those listening on the web right now. Um... Read verse 16 of chapter 1 of Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. 
when Jesus came on the scene, or even even before that, God's drawing was of the nation of Israel. He's revealing himself, his covenants, his laws, his uh, uh, sacrificial system, all this was being revealed to the nation of Israel. Now again, they were to be a light to the Gentiles. Uh, unfortunately, they did, a, instead of being a light to the Gentiles, they did a God loves us and he hates everybody else, and they weren't a light to the Gentiles. It's no accident that God moved them into that part of the world, because back at that time, that was the only way to get anywhere. You had to go through the nation of Israel to get where you would ever go back in that time in history, and he put them there to be his light of revelation for the fact that there is one God, the true God, and here he is, but unfortunately the Jews said, he likes us and he hates y'all. And the Jews actually believed there were only two evident, uh, two reasons for the Gentiles even to exist. One was, we need servants. So God made Gentiles so that we could have servants. And the second one, he's going to have to burn somebody in hell. So he made Gentiles. For, this is the honest truth. They literally believed that the reason God created Gentiles was, for, we need servants, and he's going to burn somebody in hell so that he made the Gentiles for that purpose. They did not understand the heart of God. And they didn't understand his purpose. But when Jesus came on the scene, there's a very interesting story in Matthew 15, is one of the gospel accounts. Uh, he's walking along, and this woman who has a daughter possessed by a demon called out and says, and she's from Gentile territory and, and uh, Syrophoenicia there, and, and uh, he said, she says, Have mercy on me, heal my daughter. She's possessed by a demon. And the Bible says Jesus ignored her. And then the disciples come and say, Look, send her away, she's driving us nuts. And Jesus then says this, It's not right for the children's bread to go to the dogs. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Now the awesome thing is, is she then says, Well, even the children get, uh, the dogs get to lift the crumbs that fill off the children's table. And you're the only one, in, other, in essence, you're the only one that has what I need. And if I have to be a dog to get it, I'll be a dog, because even the crumbs will be enough. What a humble heart. And now, of course, Jesus says, My father's at work here. Because nobody could have that attitude unless my father had opened their eyes and he deals with their situation. But why did he say I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel? Because that's what he was. It was to the Jew first, and then in time he knew God was going to move his drawing to the Gentiles. Now, was he drawing the Gentiles? Yes. This woman's a Gentile, and for her to have this understanding, she definitely had eyes to see and ears to hear. We see a situation where the centurion comes and says, My son is sick, I need you to heal him. And Jesus said, Well, let's go to your house. And he says, You don't have to go. I'm a man in authority. I just do this, I do this, and do that, and people do it. You just say the word. And Jesus said, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all Israel. And he heals them and says, Your son's healed. And at that moment, the man, the son was healed. And so, was God drawing the Gentiles? Yes. But not in the measure in which he was drawn to Jews. But a very interesting thing happens in John chapter 11. Go real quick to John chapter, actually John chapter 12, verse 20. As you're turning there, let me remind you that Jesus himself said, uh, The Son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees his Father doing. He goes where he sees his Father at work, if you will, and recognizing his Father's work. In John chapter 12, verse 20, look closely what it says here. It says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, We would like to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and turned and told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now it's very interesting. Look closely at what's going on here. A group of Greeks come to Philip and say, We want to see Jesus. They, he goes and gets Andrew, and the two of them go to Jesus and say, There's a group of Greeks that want to see you. Jesus' response to this is, it's time for me to die. Why is that the signal? Gentiles were coming to him in, in greater numbers. In greater numbers. Not an individual Gentile here, an individual Gentile there. Now all of a sudden you see a group of Gentiles. A group of Greeks who are being drawn. They would Remember, no one seeks God on their own. If someone's even seeking God right now in your neighborhood, in your family, it doesn't mean they know who he is yet. Or they at least starting to feel like, you know what, I want to get to know who God is. They might be trying Hinduism. They might be trying uh, Islam. They might be trying all sorts of stuff. But if they're even seeking God at all, he's begun his work in their heart. And Jesus saw now, like you said, that it wasn't an individual here. But it's now a group of Greeks. And he started to realize, my father is moving his drawing from the nation of Israel to the Gentiles. It's time for me to die. 
And in the same way, right now, Jews have an opportunity to be saved and Jews are coming to faith in Christ. But not in massive numbers. But there comes a point, and we are very, 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 and I can't put enough varies on that close to that time period. Scripture and prophecy is lining up to the point that the time of the church age is about to draw to a close with the rapture. There's a different, he's got a different plan for the church than he does the nation of Israel. And there's one last seven year period left for the nation of Israel according to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And when the end of the church age is over, and he gathers his bride, and we go to the marriage supper of the Lamb, he finishes his last seven year period plan for the nation of Israel. Folks, that time is coming close. Oh, and by the way, when we're taken out, he begins to draw the nation of Israel. The Bible says he's going to see them. They're jealous, Lord God, for love. Whether they understand it at that time, I don't know. But this much will happen. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish witnesses that are sealed by the Spirit of God and sent into the world to go preach. So there's going to be 144,000 that immediately come to faith in Jesus Christ. There'll be two witnesses, and we can debate over who we think they might be. We're going to preach in Jerusalem for the first three and a half years, and the message is going to go out, and he's going to be calling them and drawing them. It's going to culminate when he comes back in power at the end of that seven-year period, and they're going to look on him whom they pierced, and they're going to believe that it's he. Because remember, this nation of Israel is still going to sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist. They're not going to have a full understanding until the very end. But understand this, right now, we're being drawn by the Spirit of God. The Gentiles are being given that opportunity in mass. It's going to come to a close. And the Jews then will have it him drawing them again. Now, is it totally the door totally shut for the Jews? No. It was never totally shut for the Gentiles. But God is the one who's doing this work. And let's be honest, now all of a sudden Romans chapter 11 verses 33 through 36 makes a whole lot more sense, does it not? Mm-hmm. After dealing with all this deep theology... Paul then says, and look close to what he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How awesome it is that I've got it all figured out. (laughs) He doesn't say that, does he? No, he says, How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Some of you might have some more questions. I may try to answer them, but I'm going to have to tell you, this is all I know for right now. This is all that he's revealed, at least to me, at this point. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who's been his counselor? We've all applied for the position, but who's ever given to God that God should repay him? In other words, what does God owe you? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is some deep stuff, folks. I hope it's been helpful a little bit to see at least a taste of what we're, what's going on and what God's plan has always been. We're not going to totally understand it. We're not going to be able to totally figure it out. But go right ahead. Jim, uh, you know, in, in the end there, and I'll just read it one, like 32, for God has bound over all men's disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Even the Jews who died out in the desert, they were there for the 40 years with Moses, and they were just totally disobedient. In the end, I think they're in heaven. I believe they're in heaven. And here's why. And I've just recently had God open my eyes to this. And uh, I actually heard an old teaching of J. Vernon McGee where he said the same thing, so I must be good. But, uh, but the nation of Israel was taken in, out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and set free and brought into the presence of God. That's a picture of salvation, folks. And... We always have heard the songs. You remember growing up in uh, you know, the church and singing songs about crossing the Jordan River, and it's always been a picture of our euphemism for heaven. One day I'm going to cross the Jordan River. But let me just tell you, crossing the Jordan River is not a picture of heaven. Going into the promised land is not a picture of heaven. Because if that's the case, there's going to be sin in heaven. There's going to be battles and war in heaven. Thank God there'll be no sin in heaven. There'll be no war in heaven. Crossing over the Jordan into the promised land is actually a picture of the spirit-filled life or spirit-led life where if we walk in obedience and he uses his power and we do what he asks us to do and he does it, he knocks the walls down, if you will, and gives you victory. If you walk in disobedience, there are going to be consequences. But you're going to still have trouble. But here's the thing. 
Then in Hebrews it talks about they shall never enter my rest. For years I read that talking about they won't be able to go to heaven. No. They were, they were given salvation, if you will. They were taken out of slavery into the presence of God. But they never enjoyed the rest that is available in Him. I, have a, as a Christian, have been saved since 1973. But it isn't until recently that I've begun to enter into His rest. But I've been saved. Your, your faith has, has grown. My faith has grown, and I'm learning more to rest in the fact that Jesus will do what He said He will do. I'm understanding grace. I'm being filled with peace and joy. I'm entering into His rest. I've been a Christian. I'm going to be going to heaven since 1973, eight years old, when He gave me salvation. But I haven't entered His rest. Because I still was trying to help Him do it. I believe without question, those nation of Israel that came out of slavery into His presence... I believe that they're given righteousness. It's a gift to God. He brought them into the, His presence. But they missed out on His rest. They missed out on His rest. I hope you guys don't miss out on His rest. That's what the Sabbath was all about. It was a picture of rest in Christ. What did we do to the Sabbath? We made it a law and a rule. And we judged each other by how well we kept it. Go ahead. Verse 26, And therefore, and thus, all Israel will be saved. The question is, is, how much is all? Well, to be, again, to answer that question, the answer to that question deals with a lot of different things tied in, and I'll hit them fast. Um, we do know this much, that during that last seven-year period, there are going to be those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. The 144,000 being that, the tribulation saints, if you will, uh, which are also Gentiles who are going to come to faith during that time period. Um, but the Bible says the Antichrist is going to wipe out many of them. Um, yet at the same time, there's also going to be a third of Israel that's going to be, uh, two thirds of Israel that's going to be destroyed during that time period, and one third is going to be spared, the remnant, if you will, at that period, and they're going to run into the, the some believe the Petra, out into the wilderness as God protects them during that time. I believe the final culmination of what he means by all is, is the nation of Israel as a whole will be. A majority. majority. A great majority. And here's what I mean by that. Because if it simply means everyone that's a Jew is going to be saved, that's that works. Or they're saved because they're a Jew. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches by faith. But so when it says all Israel will be saved, he's simply saying that the nation right now that has turned their back on him, the nation will turn back. When the nation of Israel repented and they well let's take Jonah, for example. When Jonah went and preached and said, hey, here's the deal. Uh, 40 days and you're going to be judged. The nation repented. The whole nation. Let's be honest. Was it the whole nation? Never is. So, in answer to your question of the all, I believe that it's referring to the predominant majority, but you can't take it to the extent of every Jew is going to be automatically saved because they're a Jew. Then it has something to do with their, their heritage, and he's already said it has nothing to do with your heritage. I still think that predestined means Yes, it has to be through the predestined means. And so the 20 generations were plus or minus so far of the Jews since Christ came. Not them. That's the 20th. I mean, I mean so, yes. so we're, all we're talking about this remains now is kind of interesting. Well, but in that sense, yes. I'm, I'm talking about the one-third, two-thirds. I'm talking those that are alive during that seven-year period. But that's what the Bible talks about, two-thirds will be. And that's talking about during that time period. Yes. But has there been a remnant who have come to him through the predestined means throughout history? Yes. But yes, but the all, it doesn't mean every Jew that's ever lived from time period. Well, I can tell you one reason scripturally why that's not true. Because Jesus said about Judas, he was a child of Satan, if you will, or son of perdition from the beginning. And he went where he belongs. Now, did he have a choice? He sure did. He had an opportunity. He had a choice. Jesus even called him a friend when he came to him in the garden. But he also said that he's in hell. So that's a Jew that's not going to go. But I'm glad you brought that out because I meant to deal with that. So. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, as we were growing up, and, and I wasn't around back then. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but you might can't. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> There were times when um, when people were witness to and they were hard-hearted and wouldn't accept the Lord and people worried and prayed about them and all. And there was a common saying that, that their hearts were hardened and they would not accept the Lord. 
Was that the same kind of hardening of the heart that, that you were talking about? I, I, well, first of all, I think a lot of times people jump to conclusions and put words in God's mouth. Right. Paul said no for a long time. I actually believe that the Spirit of God had been speaking to, to Paul as you really study his life and his knowledge of the word and what was going on and him seeing what was happening with Jesus and seeing what was happening with these believers I guarantee you the spirit of God was working on his heart and he said no for a very long time but he wasn't hardening to the point that he couldn't be saved unfortunately because we have for years felt that we had power to get people saved or not saved that if I tried to witness to you and you said no well you have a hardened heart God's hardened your heart so it's, you know, it's not my fault you didn't get saved it was, you know, God's hardened your heart so I would first of all say be careful of those who put words in God's mouth is it scripturally true that at some point a person has had their opportunity and, they, and, and God says now your time's up yes I believe the Bible teaches that. But beyond that, I'm going to talk to everybody like their chances are going to be. And it's not our right to say. Never, ever should be. Ever. Because that's that's God. Who's one to turn us on that heart's too hard or not? Right. That's totally God's. Totally God's. But it is true that as individuals, if we reject God's calling on our lives, we make that choice. You sure do. We are hardening our own heart. Mm-hmm. You're right. Because our own pride is going to get in the way the next time. Mm-hmm. Or yes. even if, as, as believers, God keeps trying to show us something in our lives that we don't want to change. That's a hardening as and well. It gets back to the same pride. I mean, it's, you know, if you know you've been proven wrong, you don't want to admit it you know, for whatever reason, right? Then. You know, it's interesting that Lot is in that uh, is in that group in Hebrews of, of he's faith, considered righteous faith walkers, right? And how many we have no idea how many other Jews may have lived just kind of walking on that line but still had faith in God. I mean, there could very well be millions. Well, how about Moses' mom? We don't even know her name. Oh, right. She didn't even get to name her baby. Yet at the same time, it's without question obvious that she had a faith in God. She saw this baby special. She never made it out of that time of slavery. I'm guaranteed she was dead by the time Moses actually came back and did what he did. Most likely, she was already gone. But she was a woman of faith, without question. Without question. We want to figure it out. We're in that time and era where we can just pull things apart and figure it all out. Let me tell you. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to our God, the things revealed to us and to our children. There are some things we're not going to fully grasp. We can guess at, but for the most part, all I know is this. God has said that everyone has a chance. And if they would come through the pre-chosen plan, which is through Jesus Christ, through faith in God's provision, you'll be saved. Father, again, thank you for the fact that um, even if I don't fully grasp it, and I don't, the neat thing is, is it's all going to come out really well if we just trust you. But Lord, you've put this in here for a reason. You've had Paul teach these truths to give us some insight and some understanding, especially for the days in which we live. And Lord, we're living in a time when what he talked about, uh, the Gentiles' time period coming to a close, most likely is going to happen in our lifetime. And so with that, Lord, we, we really want to understand that you've got a plan, and especially it's one for the nation of Israel, and it hasn't stopped. Father, may we continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but we understand that that's not going to happen until you yourself come back, Jesus, and set up your kingdom. So we ask you to come. We ask you to do it. But in the meantime, your word says that if you don't come today or tomorrow, because there are more, you still want to come, come to know you. May we just share this good news that the provision for their sins has already been made. It's already been paid. They just have to, by faith, accept it and believe it. They don't have to do anything except say, He already paid for my sin, and I believe. Father, may we just share that good news with everybody. It's a simple thing, and we'd be willing to do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.